scripture today is taken from John 8, verse 37 to 47. Sorry, 31 to 47. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answer him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answer him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father's the devil and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you can fix me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Grace. Appreciate that. Uh, friends, it's so good to be back with you all, and it's so good to see everyone. <clears throat> I really miss worshiping with you. Let me just say it's so humbling just to see the Lord work through CCC the past three weeks, how everybody just kind of took charge uh, uh, about the new space because we just moved here, I think, just a little over a month ago. Heard so many good things about the Mercy Ministry Program that happened a few weeks ago. So many good things about Gray and Elisa's sermons and just the way you guys took charge with, with kind of making sure this space is, is, is ready for worship. You added these sound uh, proof things and you gave me a really cool Britney mic. So just really excited about all that, and, and, and thank you guys. It's just really encouraging. All that's happening in the community groups and all that kind of stuff. So thank you guys so much. And, and, and while in the U.S., a few of our supporters and a few churches that I visited asked me, aren't you worried for leaving the church for that long? Like, aren't you scared things are going to go well? And I said, if you knew the kind of team I was working with, if you knew the capacity and the commitment that these people have, you won't be worried at all. I think it's true, and, and so just want to say I'm really encouraged by you guys that I get to partner in with the gospel with you. And also just to let you know, while I was in the U.S., I met a few supporters in a few churches, and they wanted me to tell you that they have been keeping you guys in their prayers 
all this time. And just so you know that there's been people in various countries uh, that's been praying for this church plant ever since 2012. So they've been praying for this church more than I have. Um, and I know at least one person who's been praying for us since 2012 at least once a week. Uh, so when they hear about you guys, when they hear about what the Lord's doing here, they're just so thankful and so grateful and, and so encouraged uh, by, by all you guys and, and what the Lord's doing. So, so just want to say that to you. Hope that's a word of encouragement that you have brothers and sisters throughout the world that's lifting you up to the Father consistently. All right, so let's begin in our passage. Let's continue in our series through the book of John. We're probably going to finish John chapter 9 before we take a break and do another book in the Bible. And today we're going to continue in seeing Jesus' dialogue with the Pharisees. We see Jesus who's been talking to the Pharisees this whole time. And, and as the book moves forward, as Gray mentioned last week in a sermon, the intensity of these conversations and these arguments kind of get, get intensified. And this passage today, as all passages do in John, is connected to chapter 1, the introduction, the premise of the whole book, where John describes Jesus Christ being the light who has come down to the world, yet the darkness of this world rejects him. And here, through Jesus' words with the Pharisees, we kind of, so to speak, get to the bottom of it. He kind of tells us of, of why it is that the darkness is so repulsed by the light. Why it is that the darkness mocks the light, rejects the light, and eventually crucify the light. If we are a Christian here today, I pray that these words will humble us, remind us of what we were freed from, and where it is we found freedom, and also help us, hopefully, to grow in this freedom, because if you're anything like me, although the scriptures has declared us through Christ as free, I still struggle and live my life as if I'm still enslaved. And if you're here today, and you're not a Christian, or you're still exploring the gospel, you're still trying to figure out what the Bible is all about, what Jesus is all about, then though you may leave here today still exploring, still wanting to figure out, wanting to know more, I hope at the very least Jesus' words will be informative to you, that you get a clear understanding of what this gospel claim, what this gospel word is about. What does the Bible say about our slavery and how it is we are freed from it? All right, so three points for today. The slavery of self-obsession, the origin and effects of self-obsession, the one who gazed upon the self-obsessed. The slavery of self-obsession, the origin and effects of self-obsession, the one who gazed upon the self-obsessed. Pray with me before we dive into the word. Father, what an amazing reality, what an amazing truth you have given us in your word that through Christ we have been freed from slavery. And Lord, I pray that these words you have spoken do not land on deaf ears, that we might hear and see the light, and that we might know you, the Savior of this world, the lover of our souls, and that we might receive this gospel word with open hearts, that it may change our lives and make us worshipers as creatures are meant to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, point number one, the slavery of self-obsession. So let's start with verse 31. All right, what does Jesus say, or what does John say here in verse 31? So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. The conversation here is happening between Jesus and the Jews who had, quote-unquote, believed him. But 
This belief is not true belief. Like many other times in the book of John, John uses the word belief to describe sometimes a people who seemingly might have believed in Jesus, but when you pry in, they actually don't. For example, at the end of chapter 2, you see John saying that many of these people believed in Jesus, but then the chapter ends like this. Yet Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knows what was in man. Saying that this belief, they, they, they believed, but they believed in a Jesus of their own making, of their own understanding. They wanted Jesus to be a miracle worker, worker that solves all the earthly problems. And Jesus said, that's not who I am. So, so it may seem like you believe, but truly you don't believe in the claims I've made about myself through my gospel word. So here again, Jesus speaks to those who seemingly believe in him and says this. If you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. A few things to point out there. One, a true disciple of Jesus abides in his word. The term abide here means remain, rest in, does not depart from, endures in his word. Okay, what, what is his word? Well, this word is a gospel message that he's been preaching to us this whole time in John. That he is God the Son, sent by God the Father, and he has robed himself in humanity, in flesh, and he's entered into our story to redeem God's people by taking the consequence of our sins upon himself. And that everlasting life can only be found in and through his work on the cross. The true disciple of Jesus abides in, remains in, holds on to this word. This is the Christian's mode of being, as one commentator says. Okay, so how does this play out in our actual day-to-day life? What does abiding in this gospel word look like for us day-to-day? Well, for example, the Christian who falls into sin if he abides and remains and holds on to Jesus' gospel word, it will protect him from the condemnation and the shame that comes with this failure, with this sin. Because he realizes what the gospel says. In the gospel, no failure can make God love him any less. God cannot love him any less because all of his sins have been paid for on the cross. So this person no longer becomes his own judge. He no longer, his opinions, his thoughts of himself, no longer becomes the ultimate measure of who he is. No longer becomes the ultimate measure of how valuable he is, of how worthy he is, of how loved he is. But it works in the other way too. When this Christian, this person does something pleasing to God, he experiences success in some sort of obedience if he abides in and remains in and holds into Jesus' gospel word, it protects him from pride and superiority. Why? Because he realizes that in the gospel, no act of obedience can make God love him anymore. God can't love him any more than he does perfectly through the cross. See, these persons' thoughts and feelings no longer become the final word or the final authority of who he is of how valuable he is, of how worthy he is, of how loved he is. And you know what this does? You know what this gospel word does? It takes our eyes off ourselves and it puts it onto Christ. This is the freedom we're going to get into verse 32. It frees us 
from relying upon our own word as the ultimate judge of our own worth. See, see that without, without this gospel, the measure of who you are is going to be up to you. If you're naturally individualistic, then what you think about yourself, not what others think, but what you think about yourself is the ultimate judge of who you are. Your own opinions of yourself is the ultimate judge of your worth. If you're naturally more social and more communal, then probably the thoughts of other people, what other people think about you, is going to be the ultimate judge of who you are. What they, how they view you is going to be how you view yourself. If you have a bit of a religious bent, then maybe what you think God feels about you is the measure of who you are, but it's still what you think God thinks of you. You see? It's still all about what you think of yourself, how, how you view yourself, how others view yourself, how God views yourself. At the end, either way, it's your own thoughts and your own observations about who you are that becomes the ultimate measure of who you are. But Jesus' gospel word says what? You are no longer the judge. I am. I have said a word. And this word declares that you are worth infinitely more than you can imagine. You know, the most popular, well-known summary of Jesus' gospel word in the book of John that he said already is John, what? 3.16, right? Everybody, almost everybody knows that. Uh, this is the summary of maybe, you can say, a good summary of what God declares who you are in Christ. What does it say? John 3.16. This is, this is one summary of the word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, it's easy to read that verse and think this. Jesus loves me so much he died for me. Is that true? Absolutely. Jesus loves you so much he died for you. But that's not what the verse says. Who is it loves you? For who so loved the world? For God so loved the world. He gave his only son. Who is the focus of, who is the one that loves you in this verse? The father. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Now look at the language again at John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why, why the dramaticness? Why the, the only son? Well, it's interesting. Stick with me. You go back to Abraham and you remember the time when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, what was the language there? Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Abraham didn't need to know this information. Uh, he knows that Isaac <clears throat> is the son that God has promised. So why did God reaffirm your only son? It's to say, Isaac is so precious to you, isn't he? He's your only son. And of course, God then stopped Abraham before he was able to sacrifice Isaac. But the story of Abraham was meant to point us to the cross where God so loved you, he gave, pause, his only son. You have no idea how precious Jesus was to the Father. Your deepest loves can never even begin to comprehend how much God the Father loves God the Son, yet he crushed him. And the Son willingly died, laid his life down. Why? 
for you. My gospel word, Jesus says, is that I've declared your worth. It's not in my notes, and I heard this in a sermon somewhere, and I want to be sure that I'm not being heretical here, but a, but a preacher once said, and you have to be careful how you answer this because you can, you can be a heretic. So anyways, the, the preacher said, God the Father loved his son so much that he was willing to give him up for you. Does that mean that God the Father loves you more than he loves the son? Be careful how you answer that. You can, you can be a heretic, but do you see the tension he's trying to lift us? If God the Father gave his only son for you, what does that mean about who you are? Stop letting your failures determine this. It doesn't make you less in his eyes. Stop letting your successes determine this. It can't make you any more in his eyes. Stop being your own judge of who you are. Does not living that way tire you? How long must you endure that? Are you not exhausted of looking at yourself and being the ultimate voice of who you are? Verse 32, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from what? From the sin of self-obsession. Look at, look at how the Pharisees responded to this in verse 33. After Jesus tells them, abide in my gospel word, example, look unto me for salvation, and you will be free. Look at their response in verse 33. We are offspring of Abraham. And have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you, you will become free? The Pharisees immediately made it about who? About themselves. And it's interesting, this whole dialogue, the Pharisees had exactly three sentences. They had three opportunities to talk. And every single time, they made it about themselves. Verse 33, we are the offspring of Abraham. We are free. Abraham, verse 39, Abraham is our father. We're not enslaved. Verse 41, we are not born of sexual immorality, referring to that they're, 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 they're the pure race. Their fathers never, you know, uh, uh, um, got married to people who aren't Jews. They're, they're not muggles, if you watch Harry Potter. My wife does, or it's stuck in my head. The, they're the pure race, right? They're, it's all about them. Don't you know me? They say, look at me. I've been to church my whole life. I've come down from generations of Christians. I've been good my whole life. Don't you know me? This gospel word isn't for me. I don't need it. Self-obsession. Or, you don't know me, some might say. Look at me. I've been entrenched in failures my whole life. I've lived in wretchedness my whole life. I've lived in sin that you can not even begin to comprehend. This this Jesus thing isn't for me. Self-obsession. Martin Luther describes sin as, in Latin, incurvatus in se. It's, it's a curving inward into oneself. It's, it's a self-obsession. It's a self-addiction. It's, 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 we look at ourselves so much that we kind of curve and collapse inward. See, yes, sin has a lot to do with our actions and rights and wrongs, yes, but, but at the heart of it, it goes much deeper than that. John is trying to communicate here that at the heart level, it's self-obsession. See, the person who's self-obsessed is totally opposite to the person I described earlier who abides in God's gospel word. 
when the self-obsessed man sins, he does not look outward unto Christ. He doesn't see the work in the person of Christ on the cross. He dwells so deeply in his guilt and his shame, he can't get past it. Why? Because he's too busy looking unto himself, not unto Christ. And the other side is the same. When the self-obsessed man does something good, when he succeeds to obey, his ego swells up. Why? Because he doesn't see the cross. He's too busy admiring his own good works. He's too busy looking at himself. See, both self-condemnation and self-exaltation comes from self-obsession. Self-condemnation and self-exaltation comes from self-obsession. We look at ourselves. It makes us the judge and gives us the gavel to decide for ourselves our own worth, that it prisons us behind the bars of self-obsession. Now, where did this come from? Why does the Bible say we are like this? Is, is this something that everyone is enslaved to or just, just the Pharisees? How do we become this way? Let's, let's see what Jesus says in the rest of the conversation. Point number two, the origins and effects of self-obsession. Jesus continues to give reason of why the Pharisees were enslaved by this. Look at verse 38. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Then again, he repeats in verse 41, you are, in the, you are doing the works of your father did. So who is this father Jesus is referring to? Look at verse 44. He tells us, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. Now, that sounds like harsh words. I, I get that. But I don't think Jesus said this just to kind of diss them. He didn't say this just to kind of insult them, but he was trying to reveal to them and to the other people listening into this conversation he was having with them back then of the origin of this darkness. It goes all the way back to the fall, to the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. In the garden, God the Creator lived a perfect communion with us, his creatures, in a blessed shalom, you can say, in a blessed peace, where the Creator was a creator and the creature was the creature. The creator had a word, and the creature abided in that. That's where blessed peace and shalom, that's how things were meant to be. But Satan disrupted this creator-creature relationship and did what? It's interesting. What did Satan do? What was the first place he attacked in order to destroy everything? These are the very first words of Satan, Genesis 3, verse 1. Did God actually say what did Satan attack first? God's word. Did he actually say? The first thing Satan chose to go after was God's word. God forbidden man to eat the fruit in Genesis 2 and said that if you eat this, you surely will die. Not because he's some kind of narcissistic dictator, but this is what perfect shalom looks like. The creator being the creator and the creature being the creature. That's what perfect peace and harmony looks like. And what did Satan say in Genesis 3, verse 4 to 5? You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The insidious whispers that haunts creatures even today, you can be like God. It's all about you. Disregard him and his word, be your own God. Decide for yourself what is good and evil. You don't need him. 
Look unto yourself. Worry about yourself. Make it about you. Be your own judge of who you are. Incurvatus in se. You can be your own judge. Determine for yourself what's right and wrong. And therefore, decide for yourself who you are. How you can live this life. Don't listen to this dictator. This is what the Pharisees are doing. They're looking unto themselves to be the justifiers of their own souls. It's about our lineage. It's about our ethnicity. It's about our good works. It's about our morality. It is not by grace through faith in Christ alone. No, 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 no. That sounds so dependent. That makes us so weak. It is by our own works, through our faith and ourself alone. Be your own God. And we have been entrenched in this darkness of self-obsession ever since. And you know what it does? Here are the effects of it. It deafens us from being able to hear what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Why don't you understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Notice Jesus didn't say, you don't understand what I say because you misheard my word. It's not like their ear, there's something wrong with their ears. It's not like a goat bleat when Jesus said these words. I think that's the noise a goat makes. They, they heard the words fine. It is because you heard it. You, it's not that you didn't hear it, but you heard it and you can't bear it. The reason them not understanding is not because they misheard the words that came out of Jesus' mouth. It's because their hearts could not bear it. What goes in the ear were the same exact words that left Jesus' mouth. The words were. But when it entered their hearts, it became a whole different saying. You heard my word. You cannot understand what I'm saying. They can't bear it. <clears throat> don't understand it. The content's the same, but the saying is different. The content is this. Jesus says, you can only get to God through me. The words of Jesus is this. I love you. I want to be with you. Receive this gospel and abide in my word. This is the saying they hear. How exclusive of him. To claim that he's the only way? You mean I can't contribute anything? I'm that helpless? Is it true? Does he claim to be the only way? Yes, the words are the same. But when the heart filters it, it filters it through self-obsession. Jesus' words is this, I am God in flesh who has come to die for you. I've entered into this world to take your place for what you deserve, for you all have disregarded the creator-creature relationship, but I'm here to redeem you. But what they hear Jesus say is this, I have a delusional sense of grandeur and I'm here to brag about it. I'm here to make you feel less holy than me and I'm here to help your helpless souls. Is the content correct? Yes, he is much more holy than us. Yes, he is here to help our helpless souls. The words aren't the problem. But when they hear it, the saying filtered through self-obsessive hearts, they become repulsed by it. The problem isn't that their ears can't hear but their hearts can't understand. This is the darkness. And it's not just limited to the Pharisees and third century Judaism. That's why Jesus bypassed their argument. They argued, look at Abraham. Jesus said, no, 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 no. You're not looking back enough. Look at Adam. <laughs> the slavery is not limited by background and ethnicity or family history. This, this goes back to Adam. This goes back to the fall. It affects everyone. None of us 
are innocent of incurvatus in say. Jesus is saying, I don't care what your race is. I don't care what your ethnicity is. I don't care how often your mom and dad went to church. This isn't a racial issue. This isn't a family issue. This is a creature issue. All man has fallen. Under Adam, we have believed the same lie that he did, and we're all prisoners, enslaved by incurvatus in say. So, what's the solution? How can we break out of this prison, out of this darkness, of this, of this slavery, of caving inward? So it's tempting to think that, okay, the solution is, the answer then is to try and be less self-obsessed, right? That, that's kind of what we naturally think. If my problem is I'm too self-obsessed, the solution is for me to kind of muster up in myself the strength to be less self-obsessed. I can defeat my own self-obsession. And it's tempting to think that the freed Christian, therefore, tempting to think. The freed Christian, therefore, is a person who has successfully humbled themselves, and because of their, their own ability to humble themselves, they can fan, finally abide in God's gospel word. Not exactly. That's not, that's not what Jesus says. Neither does it make sense. Jesus and reason dictate that the way out of self-obsession cannot be by saving ourselves. Let's get to the third point the one who gazed upon the self-obsessed. In this last point, I want to address two people. Uh, I want to address both those of you here who are Christians, who have received the gospel, but I also want to address those here who are still exploring the gospel, still trying to figure out what Jesus is all about. First, for those who are still exploring the gospel. I hope you don't hear me saying Christians are better than other people because in their own sobriety, because in their own strength and consciousness, they have somehow, unlike other people, mustered up the strength from within themselves to not be self-obsessed. And because of that, they're free. That's not true. That's not true because that's not what Jesus says, but also not true because that's unreasonable. It can't be true. Think about it. If the source of your freedom from self-obsession is found in your own ability to not be self-obsessed, you still become the hero of your own story. And if you're freed from your self-obsession, your freedom from your self-obsession is only going to make you more self-obsessed, you see, because you have succeeded to save yourself from self-obsession. You see how that gets confusing? And it just doesn't work. If you have successfully saved yourself from self-obsession, that's only going to make you more self-obsessed because you freed yourself. It's, it's unreasonable. It's illogical. How is then the Christian freed? How can we be freed from self-obsession without it making us more self-obsessed? Well, the only answer is that if this freedom comes from outside of you, which is what Jesus says. Something interesting in verse 35. Jesus says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. The son here has dual meaning. One is referring to our status as sons, meaning that we are the recipients of the inheritance of the father. By the way, when the New Testament refers to men and women, they use the word son for both, not because the Bible is sexist. It's actually the opposite. The Bible is trying to say that no matter what your gender is, you can have the inheritance of the father. Because back then, only the eldest son gets the inheritance. 
what Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter what your gender is, what your gender is, you're going to get the inheritance in Christ. You're equal. So that was actually offensive to sexist, misogynistic people back then. You're all sons, no matter your gender. In Christ, you all can become sons. But, but the word son does not only refer to us and our status before the Father in Christ, but two, the term son is referring to Jesus himself, to Christ himself. Think about it. Who is the true son? Who is God's only son? Who is it that has the right and intimacy and relationship with the Father? Who has the full right, so to speak, to the inheritance of the Father and remain, so to speak, with him forever? God, the Son, Jesus. But yet, in his incarnation on the cross, he did not remain under the Father's protection and care, did he? On the cross, he received the opposite. He cried, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And the Father was silent. No legions of angels came to save him. No word from the heavens came to roar for his rescue. The Father looked away as the Son was killed by creatures enslaved in their self-obsession. And instead of care, as a true son should have received, right? Verse 35 said, the father imparted unto him his full wrath. Think about this. If verse 35 says the son remains forever, so why then did the true sinless son, verse 45 says he was sinless, why did he not remain forever in the father's house? Why was he not partakers of the father's care on the cross? Why did he have to endure it? For you. Because he loved these self-obsessed creatures so much, he was willing to take their place for them. What is the gospel? The gospel is our creator God, the only being who has the right to look upon himself, instead laid his eyes upon us, self-obsessed creatures, and loved us. Look, look at the contrast here. Self-obsession at its worst kills, verse 37 says. You seek to kill me as did the Pharisees to Jesus. They, they killed him. But what does John 3.16, remember, what does it say love do? Love is the opposite of self-obsession. For God so loved the world, he gave. Self-obsession kills, love gives. This is the only way self-obsessed creatures can be freed from self-obsession. Not by freeing themselves, that will only lead them to more self-obsession, but by looking at something so beautiful outside of them, they can't help but stare at it. He has put on flesh and died for me, realizing that God, as 1 Timothy 6 says, the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only one who has the right to look upon himself has decided to set his gaze upon you. And he gave. Now, you're here today and you have accepted Christ. You have received him as Lord and Savior. You have relied upon and abided in this word alone for salvation. We still struggle with self-obsession, don't we? Uh, although we're no longer condemned by it, thanks be to Christ, but do we not still struggle with it? I, I do every day. So how can we grow as those already redeemed in Christ and, and, and let go of this self obsession and move towards Christ obsession, God obsession. This passage tells us how we can grow in that is by seeing 
by seeing how little of a role you played in your own salvation. Hear this. The extent to which you think you played a role in your own salvation is the extent to which self-obsession will entangle you. Let me repeat that. The extent to which you think you played a role in your own salvation is the extent to which self-obsession will entangle you. Friends, the good news as Jesus speaks in this passage is more than just him dying on the cross. I don't want to minimize his death on the cross, but it, but it extends beyond that. Yes, he died for you, but look at verse 36. Who, has, who is it that has set you free? If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And this is not just talking about the Son dying on the cross for you. Remember the context. The context is the Pharisees can't hear, well, they can hear the words, but they don't know what Jesus is saying. His heart, Their hearts won't receive it. Why is that? Jesus' disciples understood it. Nicodemus understood it. The woman in Samaria, Samaria understood it. The, the Samaritan people understood it. But why can't the Pharisees understood it? He's saying because they have not yet been set free by the Son. Jesus asked Peter in Matthew 16, Who do you say I am, Peter? And Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Listen, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's been revealed that he's been set free. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the gospel and the good news goes beyond the substitution that Christ did for you on the cross. The good news is not only that he died for you, but he's also the one who caused you to understand and receive it. Because if left to our own devices, we never will hear it. But that's not all. He keeps going. If you've been set free by the Son, if you've received this work on the cross for you, if you understand what he's saying, why did he do that? Why did he choose to set you free? Why did he cause you to understand the word that the Pharisees couldn't understand? Look at verse 47. It says, because you are of God. Of God in the Greek there is ektotheo. Ek is out of, originating, exist from God. Meaning, God not only sent his only son to die for you, not only has he freed you and made you understand the death of his son for you, but he did all this because from the very beginning, he has wanted you for himself because you are of him, because you exist from him from the very beginning. And although like all mankind, we are under Adam and don't deserve it, he says, you are mine and you've always been mine. Christian, the good news goes well beyond the cross. It doesn't exclude the cross. I don't want to minimize the cross, but this is the good news, that although under Adam, none of us deserve it, yet God, by his mercy, loved you with an everlasting love. And because of that love, he gave. He died in your place. And then he revealed all of this to you, caused you to receive it, because if left to your own devices, you would only be repelled by it. Stick with me. Stick with me. This means that the good news is that God did not die on the cross to make you beautiful. He did not die on the cross to make you beautiful. He died on the cross because you have been beautiful to him ever since the beginning. You hear that? He didn't die on the cross to make you beautiful. He died on the cross 
because you have always been beautiful to him. And he's always wanted you for himself. We're not done. There's still more to the good news. Look at verse 36. Look at the second half. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You will be free indeed. Not might, not perhaps, not if the Son sets you free. I hope that you'll receive this freedom, but that's really your call. Not if the sun sets you free, then you're going to start off free, but then the remaining of your freedom, you have to work for that. No. The sun will set you free. This is a statement of finality. If God has, by his mercy, counted you as his own, he not only died for you, he not only called you to be able to receive and abide in this word, he will also guarantee it till the end. Thus, our passage today summarizing what Jesus already once said in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. What do you think Paul meant in Ephesians? When he says, I long for you, church. I long for you to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love. What did he mean? It's this, that it cannot be found in you. It cannot come from you. Not one bit of it. Stop looking inward. Stop caving in. It'll kill you. Look unto him. It'll set you free. This, Christian, is how you grow in set, setting your eyes off yourself unto this gospel, unto this word. Again, the same principle. You can't free yourself out of self-obsession by mustering up your own strength. By saying, uh, if I succeed in this, I'll be my own hero. That'll just make you more self-obsessed. You, you can't just say, be less self-obsessed. Be less. You, you, it doesn't work like that. You become less self-obsessed by constantly setting your gaze on the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love that God has for you. Expose yourself to this word night and day, as the psalmists say. And freed by this gospel word, growing in this gospel word, live now a life that's not inwardly caving, but God-focused, others-centered. Love and give. This is the mode of your existence now. Love and give. For you all have been loved and have received the greatest gift of all. Turn your eyes unto him whom has gazed upon you even when all we wanted to look at was ourselves. May the love and eternal commitment that this triune God has for you free us from self-obsession and continue to until he comes again. Pray with me. Father, we pray that this word does not land on ears that cannot hear. And I pray that by your mercy, because if left to ourselves, none of us can hear, your spirit will move in our hearts and that it will give us eyes and ears that look upon you and listen unto you. We are no longer the judge of our worth. We are no longer the justifier of our souls. We are no longer the final authority of who we are. But your word has spoken and it's spoken loud and clear that you have loved us with an everlasting love. 
and now this is who we are. And Father, motivated, grown, driven, entrenched by this word, make us those who love more and give more. For this is the mode of our existence now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.